longer of a passage in Scripture tonight than we normally do. Well, that's because we really need to get the context and the background of the text tonight. The text is going to be the first 14 verses of Genesis 43. But you really can't understand what's going on there unless you read Genesis 42. So this is the Word of God in Genesis 42. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren. For he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew him not. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said unto him, Nay, my lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons, we are true men, thy servants are no spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. And Joseph said unto them, That is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. Hereby ye shall be proved. By the life of Pharaoh ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you, and let him fetch your brother. And ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh surely ye are spies. And he put them all together into ward three days. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do, and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again, and communed with them, and took from them Simeon, and bound him before their eyes. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn, and to restore every man's money into his sack, and to give them provision for the way, and thus did he unto them. And they laded their asses with the corn, and departed thence. 
And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money, for behold, it was in his sack's mouth. And he said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? And they came unto Jacob their father, unto the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell unto them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spake roughly to us, and took us for spies of the country. And we said unto him, We are true men, we are no spies. We be twelve brethren, sons of our father, one is not, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the country, said unto us, Hereby shall I know that ye are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me, and take food for the famine of your households, and be gone, and bring your youngest brother unto me. Then shall I know that ye are no spies, but that ye are true men. So will I deliver you, your brother, and ye shall traffic in the land. And it came to pass, as they emptied their sacks, that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when both they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. And now what follows is the text for the sermon tonight. And the famine was sore in the land, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto them, saying, The man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. And Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me, as to tell the man whether ye had yet a brother? And they said, The man asked us straightly of our state and of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have ye another brother? And we told him, according to the tenor of these words, Could we certainly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned this second time. And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. And take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks. Carry it again in your hand, peradventure it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again unto the man and God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. 
If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. The grass withers and the flower fades away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have gotten to the point in the story of Judah where we can say that Judah was a changed man. He was a man now who knew the grace of redemption. He knew it as grace, freely given and undeserved by a wretched sinner like himself. He knew it as a sovereign act of the will of Almighty God who went out to seek and to save that which was lost. He knew it as the mercy of Jesus Christ, the same Jesus Christ who was coming into the world through His, Judah's, own line. And He knew it by faith, so that He began to say, not only to others, but to me also is this grace of redemption given. Knowing all of this, Judah lived a new life, a changed life. Now that doesn't necessarily mean there was a radical conversion experience that Judah went through. We never read of such a thing in Judah's case like we do, for example, of the Apostle Paul. It doesn't either mean that Judah now did everything in the rest of his life perfectly and without the taint of sin. What it does mean, clearly, is that he turned from his life of fornication and he poured his life into the care of his two sons, his three sons, What it also means is that he returned to his father's house and lived once more among his brothers, which was the church of that day, rather than to dwell among the Canaanites, as he had done for a while. Judah was a changed man. But we would never know the extent of the change in Judah if it were not for the story that begins here in the place that we read tonight. In the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 32 tells us that those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ are also renewed by the Spirit into the image of Jesus Christ. The natural condition of man we know in his depravity is that he looks like the devil. So the work of the Spirit in the redeemed is to restore and to renew our nature so that we begin to look like Jesus Christ so that we begin to think the way that Jesus Christ thinks and we begin to act the way that Jesus Christ acts. And that's what is happening to Judah in this passage. Having been redeemed by the Christ, who is coming through the generations of his little boy, Pharez, Judah was also renewed after the image of Jesus Christ, so much so that he even foreshadowed him in his actions in this text. This all becomes clear when Judah takes responsibility for his brother, Benjamin. And that's the theme for the sermon tonight. Judah takes responsibility for Benjamin. First, we will identify why this was necessary. Secondly, what it meant for Judah. And then finally, the effect that this had The necessity of Judah taking responsibility for Benjamin is due to the following factors. The first factor was the demand from this mysterious, princely ruler from Egypt. 
Now, we know, and the narrator in the book of Genesis knows, that that mysterious princely ruler was none other than Joseph himself. Joseph did not remain a slave in Egypt after Judah and his other brothers sold him. God elevated Joseph in the course of time through the house of Potiphar and then through the king's prison up to be the right-hand man of Pharaoh himself, which means that Joseph through God's providential intervention, had been made the second most powerful man in the world at that time, since Egypt was the world power in the ancient Near East. But Judah did not know any of that, nor did he recognize the face of this man. Joseph no longer looked like the 17-year-old boy that Judah had last seen walking away in chains. Joseph was a grown man now, and he wore the clothing of a prince of Egypt, and he spoke the language of Egypt. He was a stranger to his brothers who deliberately made himself strange to them when he recognized them, not that they ever would have looked for him in the palace of Egypt anyway. And this strange prince of Egypt spoke roughly, gruffly to Judah and his brothers and accused them on the spot and said that the only way that they could prove that they were not spies, that is, treacherous men that should be thrown into prison or even executed, was to bring Benjamin back with them to Egypt. You say you have a younger brother. You say that you have a father, that you are part of a clan. This is how you will prove it. Bring that younger brother back with you. Otherwise, no more grain and probably worse things. The second factor that made it necessary for Judah to take responsibility for Benjamin was the suspicion and near despair of their father Jacob. Now years had passed since Jacob first learned that Joseph was no more. Yet he was still clinging to his grief, clinging to it probably still wearing sackcloth and ashes every day. Jacob, at this point in his life, was a very old, very tired, and very sad person. And he did not trust his ten sons. And that's obvious. Obvious from the fact that Benjamin was not allowed anywhere near them. He sent his ten sons off to Egypt to get grain, And where did Benjamin stay? Close by his father's side, under his father's watchful eye and protection. Lest, he says to himself, mischief should befall him. And now when these ten sons come back with their report, and Simeon is not with them, and their money is somehow mysteriously still in their sacks without explanation, and they say that they can only go back to Egypt if Benjamin is with them. The suspicions of Jacob are increased and they explode out into an accusation, a pointed finger. Chapter 42, verse 36, And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. And Simeon is not. And he will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. 
There it comes out. He blames them. He blames them for everything. And as they all knew, he was at least partly right in his accusations. So how could they win back the trust of their father who had spiraled so deeply in his bitterness against them to the point where he was now pointing the finger at them and accusing them? The third factor that made it necessary for Judah to take responsibility for Benjamin was the disturbed and now very convicted consciences of these brothers. They had gone on for years at this point trying to ignore the nagging feelings of guilt and all the while they had lived a lie. Judah had tried to run away from it by living among the Canaanites for a time and by seeking a Canaanite wife and living in pleasure and ungodliness. But now they knew. There was no escaping it. God had found them out. God himself had exposed them. That's how this experience with the roughly speaking prince of Egypt was impacting their souls. They said to one another, according to verse 21, we are verily guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. God is judging us, in other words. That's what they're saying. God is judging us. That's why they had nothing to say in response to Jacob's pointed finger and bitter accusation, even if he was speaking as a sad and bitter old man. It was true. They had bereaved him. They had. Their consciences were convicted. And what now will the truly penitent spirit look like for these brothers as they deal with this reawakened guilt and these troubled consciences. Well, they must do to Joseph's brother what they had failed to do to Joseph. Someone, one of them, must take responsibility for him. The fourth factor that made it necessary for Judah to take responsibility for Benjamin was the discrediting of Judah's older brothers. Simeon was not present, of course, at this point. He was in prison back in Egypt. But even if he was, Simeon was one of those men who had massacred an entire village, the village of Shechem, bringing shame and reproach on the name of Jacob. And he had done this evil deed with his brother Levi. Jacob had little good to say about either of them, even after these events, even when he was on his deathbed. About all he had to say about Simeon and Levi were curses. Genesis 49, verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And Reuben? Oh, Reuben the actual firstborn of Jacob. But not a man gifted with the gift of leadership or the gift of wisdom. Slay my two sons, he offers. 
if I bring not Benjamin back with me? Really? Is that what Jacob wants in exchange for the safety of his younger son Benjamin? More blood? The death of two of his grandchildren? Reuben's offer was not only strange and unwise, probably alienating to his own sons. Just think about how they would have heard that. But it was offensive to Jacob. So it had to be Judah. Interestingly enough, though, Judah was the very architect of the plan that landed Joseph in slavery in Egypt. He was the only son left who had any shred of credibility to regain something of his father's trust. It had to be him. And then the final factor, and perhaps the most pressing factor that made it necessary for Judah to assume responsibility for Benjamin was the ever-looming threat of starvation. According to verse 1 of the text, chapter 31, the famine was sore in the land. Now there were some wild things that were still growing, and there were some stores of nuts that they still had on hand, a few things to eat, which is why they were able to bring a present of nuts and honey and other things when they eventually did return to Egypt, according to verse 11. But there was no grain, and the grain stores that they had bought on their first trip to Egypt were being eaten up, and they were quickly running out, which meant that they had no bread and they had no fodder for the animals. If someone does not convince Jacob to let Benjamin go with them in order to satisfy the demand of the prince of Egypt, well, they're going to run out of food. And Jacob will starve. And his ten sons will starve. And Benjamin will starve. And all of their wives will starve. And all of their little children will starve, including Pharaoh's and including Zerah, the sons of Judah. Now, if you take all of these five factors and consider them as a whole, what you could say is, and this is the necessity of Judah assuming responsibility for Benjamin, the little tribe of Israel, the covenant family of God, the line of Abraham and the line of Isaac and the line of Jacob was teetering on the edge of annihilation. And that's not an exaggeration to put it that way. That's the assessment that Joseph later gave of this exact situation later on when he was reflecting on God's purpose in all of this. God had a purpose in sending Joseph ahead of his brothers into Egypt. God had a purpose with the evil deed of the brothers in selling Joseph into slavery. And his purpose, according to Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 20, was to save much people alive. Which is to say, his purpose was to save people who otherwise would have perished, died. And not only perished due to starvation, but perished everlastingly. Had this little tribe of Israel been annihilated in this famine, Judah's son Perez would have died. Which means there never would have been a King David. And there never would have been a Jesus Christ who is the son of David, of the line of Perez, of the tribe of Judah. The stakes were as high as they could possibly be 
The stakes were the salvation of Israel. The stakes were the salvation of the Gentiles one day. The stakes were your salvation, my salvation, the salvation of our children. And of all creation, which God so loved. And you could say, at that point in the history of God's people and in the history of redemption, it all came down to this simple necessity. Who will take responsibility for Benjamin? Who will convince Jacob that his precious boy will be kept safe and will be returned to him safe and sound at the end of this journey? Who will do it? Now, as we seek to apply this part of the story, I might ask all of you the same question. And maybe this question especially is directed at the men. The fathers and the husbands and the young men. But the women also. And the young people and the young adults. Who will take responsibility? Can the stakes be any higher? When you are holding that little child in your arms for the very first time and you are looking into that tiny, precious little face. As you peer into those eyes, which is like looking through a window into an eternal soul. Gazing at a person, a person whom God has created. A person who has an eternal destiny. Either in heaven or in hell. A person who has a little mind, a little mind that is so impressionable, and a heart, a heart that can be shaped in so many directions and influenced by the environment in which that heart is brought up and raised. Who will take responsibility? Who will see to it that this little child has a home to grow up in that is safe? And where the fear of God is taught. Who will give counsel to this child when she grows up and becomes a young person and needs guidance in a hostile world? Who will rise up to the challenge of running and maintaining the good Christian schools? Who will accept the nomination to be on the school board and not only accept the nomination to be on the school board, but being on the school board will pour their lives into ensuring that this school keeps and maintains its Christian focus and mission at all costs. Who will do it? Who will be a teacher? Who will stand before the children of the covenant day after day, carrying on an often thankless task? And not only impart the knowledge of facts and data through lectures and lessons, but impart to those children something of your own soul. 
as you lay down your life in love for your students? Who will do it? Who will take responsibility? Nothing less than life and death is at stake. Do you realize that? The prophets of old were always complaining that God's people were destroyed. Why? For lack of knowledge. For lack of knowledge. So who will take responsibility? Who will ensure that this generation, these children, these young people, will not end up being a generation that knows not the Lord. Who will take responsibility? Beloved, when you look over the church, when you look around you and you see names and you see faces and you see people and needs, who will take responsibility? We seem to be living in a time when many are walking away from the church. Walking away especially from the local congregation. Why go to church when I can just watch a sermon at home in the comfort of my living room, on my couch? Why stay in this church when I'm faced with challenges Challenges or things that I don't like when I could easily go to that church over there that's maybe more attractive to me. And that all raises the question, who will take responsibility? Who will take responsibility for the brother and the sister who is right here? Whose faces are recognized, whose needs are known? Who will do the quiet work of visiting the elderly, tending to the needs of the sick, and encouraging them? Who will fight the battle, the always uphill battle of reckoning with the traditions of the past and learning from them rather than fleeing from them or throwing them out the window in favor of new ideas that are more attractive to our modern sensibilities? Who will take responsibility? Will you? Beloved, I know and you know that God is sovereign. And except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. And except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. But there are still builders and there are still watchmen. For God is a God of means. Who will take responsibility? Well, Judah took responsibility for Benjamin. For a while, and we don't know how long, but for a while there was a stalemate. The word of Jacob in response to the report of the brothers was verse 38. My son shall not go down with you. 
For his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go, then shall ye bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. But in time, the stubbornness of Jacob had to give way to the practical reality that there was quickly running out their food stores. So he finally says in chapter 43, verse 2, almost sheepishly, go again, buy us a little food. And Judah was there, and he heard what his father said, and he was ready with his response. It's not possible. It's not possible. The man did solemnly protest to us, saying, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. It's not possible if you send us down to Egypt without Benjamin, you are going to be sending us on a suicide mission. If you will not send Benjamin with us, we will not go. Now Jacob understood this. He still clung to his bitter feelings. He says in verse 6, Why did you deal so ill with me as to tell the man whether he had yet a brother? As if that was the intention of Judah and the others to do something mean to their father by telling this man in Egypt far away that they had a brother and a father. That wasn't fair. Nevertheless, Jacob was clearly wavering and Judah could see it. And he knew what to do. Verse 8. Send the lad with me. Send the lad with me. He must go. He must go. If Benjamin does not go, we will all die. Not just the ten of us. Not just you, Father, with your gray hairs. But Benjamin will die. All of our children will die. Our wives and our servants, they'll all die. Send the lad with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. And then the clincher. Verse 9. I will be surety for him. I will not offer my son's lives in order to make Benjamin's safe return sure unto you, my father. I offer myself. And not just my life or the shedding of my blood, but my personal standing before you as my father and as my patriarch. If I bring him not unto thee, if I set him not down in front of you again after we return on this journey, let me bear the blame. Let me bear the blame forever. So what did this mean for Judah? Well, first of all, it's acknowledged that it meant that he was doing something that the Bible elsewhere basically says is foolhardy. Proverbs 11, verse 15 says, he that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it, but he that, that hateth suretyship is sure. 
Why is it that somebody who hates suretyship is sure? Because when you become surety for another person, your life is always bound to the life of that other person. You become responsible for their well-being. Their failures become your failures. Their guilt becomes your guilt. It's like if you co-sign somebody's loan and then that other person fails to pay the loan. Who is responsible to pay the debt? You are. And sometimes that means getting pulled deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a morass of problems. Which is why Proverbs 6 verse 1 and following says, If thou be be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared, snared with the words of thy mouth, caught in a net. Practically speaking, What this meant for Judah in becoming surety for Benjamin is this. That he was binding his life entirely to the life of Benjamin. What Judah is saying here is this. I will do everything, everything in my power to keep him safe and to bring him home. If If Benjamin gets into trouble, I will be the one who will step in. To deliver him from harm. If Benjamin needs help. I will be the one. Who will help him. And if Benjamin does not return. If Benjamin is not standing before you. At the end of this hard journey. If Benjamin is not safe and unharmed. If he goes missing. The way Joseph did. If he never comes back. But I do. Then you can hold me personally. Responsible. For this failure. And what exactly will that personal responsibility look like for Judah? Will it mean that his sons are killed as Reuben offered? No. Will it even mean that Judah himself is killed, given the death penalty? No. It's worse. I will bear the blame. I will bear the blame forever. I will forever be known as the man who was guilty. Guilty of losing your precious son, Benjamin. You can make me the object of all of your scorn. You can make me the object of all of your bitterness. All of your vengeance. I will accept it as what I deserve. Father, you can disown me. You can cast me out of your sight, out of your tribe, out of your family like Cain who was banished into exile. Remember who Jacob is in all of this. He's not just a private individual. And he's not just Judah's father, but he's the patriarch of the covenant family, the family of God. To be connected to the house and family of Jacob is to be connected to God and His covenant. It is to have the hope of belonging to that eternal city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Judah effectively is laying his life on the line, and not his life only, but his soul for Benjamin's safekeeping. He's saying something akin to what Paul says in Romans 9 when he says, I could wish myself were accursed, accursed for my brother, Let me perish, perish far from God, 
rather than that I should fail in this thing. I will be surety for him. Of my hand thou shalt require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, let me bear the blame forever. That, beloved, is what it means to take responsibility. Responsibility does not just mean taking action of some sort or taking initiative. That's the way we tend to use the word. We say a responsible person is someone who has their life together and who shows up on time. A responsible person is somebody who can be relied upon generally to do the right thing. Young men are told you must take responsibility for yourself. That means don't be a slob. Get a job. Go to work. Earn a living instead of relying on others to take care of yourself. And this is all good advice. These are good principles to live by, but it's not really what taking responsibility means, at least not in the context of the covenant. Taking responsibility means laying down your life. Taking responsibility means considering yourself, your own needs, your own joy, your own happiness, your own soul, expendable. It means binding your life to the life of another person. To a spouse. To children. To a church. To a neighbor whom you see as in need. And then saying about that person. Their life for mine. Their happiness for my happiness. Their peace for my peace. Taking a responsibility means being drained. Drained of everything that you have until you have nothing left because there will always be more to give. Thus the warning of the proverb about snaring yourself with the word of your mouth. That's what happens when you get married, you know. The words of your mouth snare you. You've made an oath now. You've taken responsibility for another now. I will be surety for this, my wife. I will have her and I will hold her in sickness and in health, in poverty and in riches. When she's nice to me and when she returns my love and when she's difficult, to love. Beloved, there is nothing that ought to make us tremble so much as that word. Responsibility. Suretyship. It's a black hole. It will suck you in and it will spit you out, leaving nothing left but your failures. I will bear the blame forever, Judas says. And so said you the day you were married. The day you had your child baptized. The day you were sworn into office as an elder, as a deacon, or as a pastor. And you made that promise not before Jacob. And not before any man, but before the living God. If I do not execute my responsibility, I will bear the blame. You can disown me. 
You can cast me out of your sight. I promise to do my duty. I will fulfill my obligations. If that doesn't make you tremble. You haven't the slightest idea what that word means. Not that we should refrain from taking responsibility. Not at all. Judah must take responsibility for Benjamin. He must. Necessity compelled him. This was the moment for which he had been created and redeemed by the grace of God so that he would be there in that place, a new man, ready to accept responsibility for his brother's life. And it was pleasing to God. Pleasing to God what Judah did. It was the way in which God was unlocking the door of salvation for the whole family of Jacob. And necessity compels us as well. Necessity compels many of you young men to find a wife and to bind yourself to her. Necessity compels you parents to lead your children into the knowledge of their Savior and their God. Necessity compels this church to raise up men who will serve wisely as elders and deacons. Necessity compels us to care for our neighbor, to pour our lives out as an offering to God. But do not overlook what is actually happening in this passage. What's going on here? Is this just the story of a man finally being a man? Finally taking responsibility for the people around him? No. It's not just the story of Judah. If it was, we would have no hope. But it's the story of Jesus Christ. And the only reason Judah does what he does here is because he has known the grace of redemption. He has been bought by the blood of the Lamb, led in the way of repentance and faith. So that now, having tasted the grace of redemption, having known forgiveness, having been promised life and salvation in the covenant, what does he do? He does to others what Christ Jesus first and preeminently did to him. Because we must understand that that's who Jesus Christ is, beloved. Jesus Christ is the one who takes responsibility, thank God. That's who He is. That's who our Messiah is. He's the one who says, I come, I come. Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I come to do Thy will, O God. I come to carry out and to execute my responsibility as the head of the covenant, as the redeemer of the elect. Beloved, do you not see? You can never do this. You can never do it. The word itself becomes a very curse to you. Responsibility. Cursed. Cursed is the one who does not execute his responsibility. Cursed is the one who does not do every word that is written in the book of the law to do them. Curse it. Unless that curse falls upon another. And that was the responsibility of your Lord. He said before his father's face, I will be surety for them. 
for these persons whom you have known and loved from all eternity. I will be surety for them. Of my hand shalt thou require them. And if I bring them not back before you and set them before you, I shall bear the blame forever. Let the curse fall on me. Let the blame fall on me. And he did it. Beloved, he did it. He bore the blame. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, our failures to carry out our responsibilities. He hath borne them. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, stripes that were beaten on his back again and again by Almighty God in his wrath, By his stripes, we are healed. The immediate effect of Judah's taking responsibility for Benjamin is that Jacob relented at last. He relented. There was obviously still some hesitation in him, and this hesitation in Jacob made him return to his old methods. Remember when Jacob was afraid of Esau coming with 400 men, that he led the way with a great gift, livestock. And now when he sends his son Benjamin with his other sons before this great man of Egypt, and he's afraid of what the outcome will be, he sends another gift, a gift of Nuts and fruits and the the best fruit of the land, everything that he can muster in this time of famine. So he's hesitating. There's still fearful doubts going on in, in Jacob's mind. And even in his prayer as he sends them away, there is not so much faith that we see there as resignation. What's his final word? If I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Yet he allows Benjamin to leave his side. Which is amazing if you think about it. For the first time in however many years since Joseph disappeared, he lets Benjamin leave his side. And leave his side not, not only, but allows him to be taken under the arm of Judah and ridden off on a donkey until he disappeared from sight all the way down south into the land of Egypt, far away. That was no small thing when you consider all of the years in which Jacob had been harboring his grief and suspicion. Through this intercession on Judah's part, he lets Benjamin go. Jacob does. And there's a powerful lesson for us here. When you find yourself in a messy situation, when relationships have been alienated and there are family problems that run so deep that it feels like there's no peace, never peace. It's going on for years and years and years. There's suspicion, there's fear. How do you cut the tension? What's the first step to opening up the wound so that things can begin to heal? Is it by getting angry? Is it by snapping? 
Would Judah have helped the situation if he opened his speech with, well, you're just a bitter old man, Father. Why do you hold these suspicions against us? Why do you blame us for these things? Well, how did Christ do it? He had every right to get angry. Every right to snap. But he didn't do that. He shut his mouth like a lamb to the slaughter. And he swallowed the wrath of God to deliver us from the death and the hell that we deserved. Beloved, there's a lesson there. Grace. Grace is the way. Grace is always the way. Make this person to whom you have been alienated and where there are tensions, make this person know you would die for them. Make them know somehow, some way that the love you have for them echoes the love of Jesus Christ. There's power in that. There's power in that. It's unmatched by anything else. It's the power of God himself through the spirit of Jesus Christ. Grace. So the immediate effect is that Jacob relented, but there's more. The effect of Judah's actions here is that Benjamin forever became bound to him. Bound to him now. He had been bound to Jacob. His father pressed up against his father's side, probably smothered. But now he's bound to Judah. Did you ever wonder, if you remember your Old Testament history, why later on in the history of God's people, it's always Judah and Benjamin? It's always Judah and Benjamin. They're always together. There's the tribe of Benjamin that's so closely bound to the tribe of Judah that when that schism takes place and the ten tribes go this way, there's two tribes over here. And what are those tribes that are called by the name the kingdom of Judah? It's Judah and Benjamin. So this went far beyond getting Benjamin safely back to Egypt. This was a bond, a bond between these brothers that would last forever and ever even in their descendants. How much more, beloved, when Jesus Christ takes responsibility for you? Do you think it's just for a little while? Do you think it's just to get you through this hard time in your life or that trouble you're experiencing? No. By taking surety over you, he makes you his own. You become his property. Flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Thence, forever, you go down life's pathway together. He will gather you, even in your generations, so that your children and your children's children know him in his grace. The implications of this union between Jesus Christ and all who are under the umbrella of his grace is as far-reaching as it could possibly be. It extends into everlasting life itself. You will never be separated from this, your head. Oh, how blessed you are. How blessed you are, beloved. Do you know how blessed you are? To be taken under the protective care of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for Jesus Christ, for His role as our Messiah and mediator who has taken responsibility for us as the head of the covenant and we Thy elect people. Oh, Father, if we had not this assurance that we belong to Him, we would be crushed and we would live every life in doubt and fear for we know our failings. Yet we pray, O oh Father, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our faith so that we may be transformed by the renewing of our mind and so that we may look more and more like Jesus Christ so that we may take responsibility and not be afraid of it. O oh Father, only by Thy grace we are what we are. Help us and bless our children. In Jesus' name we pray.